Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbley, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, April 2nd, 2010. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. Well, for one time only, currently we're returning to the Friday evening time slot, Friday evening, 8pm Pacific, and in large part, it is so I can have the luxury of talking with Bruce Damer. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. So it's been many months, I think, since you last participated in Bios Alive, and we have, we have a wide variety of topics to cover, but I promise you can do your, your full and extensive EvoGrid update in the last 15 to 50 minutes of the show. Um, but starting, starting with some, uh, some more interesting information, I, I heard recently um, you appear on the Psychedelic Salon, Lorenzo Haggerty's podcast, in a, in a documentary that was recorded. What's, what's the story behind the documentary and when is it going to air? Yeah, the documentary is called Fall and Winter, and um, the website is fallandwintermovie.com. I'm not sure when it's airing, but it was a, a, a very energetic group of four young guys in a van driving around. They're basically chronicling the the global catastrophe movement, i.e. the people who believe sort of the Terminator 2 kind of scenarios of eco-catastrophe or, or bio or singularity catastrophe, whatever. You know, kind of chronicling it not not in with a very uh, stepped back point of view. Uh, my take on it was, hey, you know, I don't think there are any dates when there's going to be a certain end of the world, and and frankly, you know, we've got to think more positively, otherwise our lives are just dominated by these. these certainly, yeah. certainly. And in terms of their travels, are they coming to Las Vegas? Are they going to Detroit or any areas of kind of social or industrial collapse? Is that part of their road trip? Right. So, you know, I guess Las Vegas is considered a sort of area of perpetual collapse. Uh, I think that they went through the desert area. They were they were at a reservation somewhere in Arizona or or New Mexico. Uh, they, they, they're on their website, fall, fallandwintermovie.com. There's a whole trip tick and a lot of uh, photos of where the guys went and who they talked to. Fascinating. And are you in the Sasha Shulgin movie that's coming out as well? I'm not, no. Uh, we'll be seeing that uh, at this conference called MAPS in a couple of weeks, or a week and a half, or a couple of weeks. But no, I'm not actually, I'm not that associated with the psychedelic community. I I think that I'm really attracted to the way out there thinking in the community, but I'm not a a big psychedelic person. I'm a sort of a big idea type junkie more. But uh, so I don't really tend to appear in those movies. Certainly, certainly. Well, I was so excited to get you on the call, I didn't uh, announce the next episode, which will actually be next week, April 10th, uh, Publish or Perish with Liz Swan. There's been an ongoing discussion. I had some interesting correspondence, actually, with Jeffrey Ventrella this week about what could possibly be a new renaissance in artificial life publishing through self-publishing. And I think we have a, a kind of critical community currently where we can probably start editing or at least creating peer review groups uh, for particular folks such as Jeffrey, uh, who have uh, substantial texts 
in order to uh, proofread and give kind of peer review. Have you, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the self-publishing community, is this something that you see as being the way of the future, Bruce, or do you still think that Springer will uh, present artificial life to the masses sufficiently? I think that generally one of the things that we've done, and here I am starting on the evil grid, but <laughs> is I think that for the public, um, what's, what is really important are visuals, animations, um, and there's some fairly craftily well-presented ones. I won't mention the ones we did, uh, but sort of origin-of-life cartoons. Certainly. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's targeted to a particular audience, and certainly I wouldn't want to uh, talk against that at all. I mean, certainly I've had correspondence with Gerald de Jung in particular associated with his current uh, movement of Darwin at Home, and we talk a little bit more about uh, my developments with Noble Ape, I'll talk a little bit more about Gerald's own experience. So I think it's not really about eliminating any of the possible means that we have to communicate, be it audio, be it video. But I think certainly from my perspective, and we've, we've done this probably on a couple of previous lives. I seem to remember talking with you probably two and a half years ago about from books to the internet, which means what is actually the right method to to convey artificial life history to a modern audience. And I think we probably agreed there that there was need for video and audio and a wide variety of materials. I guess my discussions with Liz Swan in particular have tended to focus on the fact that there are now, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old students studying artificial life. And the Artificial Life Journal provides some interesting examples. It provides some interesting talking points. Certainly, Maciej Komanczynski and uh, Adaminski, I think is, the, is his cohort's name there, frequent Springer books provide some insight into artificial life. But the, the detail, the level of detail in terms of a developer such as Jeffrey dissecting a substantial project and analyzing a lot of the idiosyncrasies that may not necessarily feature in uh, an academic article. I mean, I think there is still a market for that. Certainly my own original manuals, although um, I remember the, the, the video recorded probably two years ago now where you referenced the original manuals but said that you yourself hadn't actually had a chance to read it. I still think there are people in the community that are looking for those kind of texts and the potential for them to sit out there even in second-hand bookshops and be picked up by, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds shouldn't be, shouldn't be sniffed upon. But the interesting thing with regards to self-publication, I'm thinking here of CreateSpace, which is the Amazon self-publishing outfit, and also Lulu, is that the price of what amounts to a standard kind of textbook-sized book or even a, a a smaller soft cover book that I've, I mean, I was printing these out and they're the size of the texts that I got in philosophy, my metaphysics texts and these kind of philosophy texts. So they're, they're very much suited to university students, probably between 7 and $10 in terms of these self-publishing outfits to produce something which is on par or even better quality than textbooks that were being created a decade or so ago. So with my own stuff, I mean, you, you have a copy of the original manuals, but it's something which I could scrub up and put in one of these kind of $7 uh, a book forms. And in those 
circumstances, getting 10 of those and sending them to Liz Swan or Larry Yeager or our fellow Dimitri Terezopoulos at UCLA, the kind of people where they have a kind of apex of students that are interested in artificial life. My, my view is that there are certain minds which would really get quite excited or interested about this whole notion of how do you start developing an artificial life project? Well, we do have audio associated with that. We do have a certain amount of text, but the kind of intimacy that Jeffrey was corresponding with me about, the, the level of detail, the, um, the really kind of warts and all analysis that you can do in these kind of books, I think would have a market, which doesn't necessarily translate well to film, may translate to periodic podcasts in some fashion. But I don't know. I, I, I get the impression just by looking at photos of your... Uh, your uh, Redwood home that you you have a fondness for books and the tactile nature of books as well. If Jeffrey and Trella self-published a book analysing, say, Darwin Pond, if he did uh, a book that analysed... In fact, I think the book is historically an interaction between his time at MIT moving up to there.com. So it's really fundamentally an A-Life Avatar crossover book. I think certainly you would be interested in reading it, and I think there are a number of folks in the community that would. So it, I see it in terms of just following a path of open source almost, that open source may exist in source code, but getting books out that are effectively at cost price to get the information out in the form which perhaps a certain group are receptive to, I just think it's another kind of, you know, another string in our bow as a community. What's your thinking along these lines? I, I really agree, and I think that the discipline of saying it's a book and it doesn't matter if it's an e-book or whether it goes to Springer, it, it, it creates a container that you have to fill and, 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 and comprehensive, make it comprehensive and make it complete and have an index and something that's a very nice package. And for me, for example, when I'm done with this PhD dissertation on the EvoGrid, I would like to pretty much right away, after recoveries of energy, put it into a book form because I think it'll be very, very fresh material and it'll be ready to be consumed. And I don't care particularly if a publisher picks it up, although it would be nice, but it, I think it's worth putting out. So any student who's actually doing a master's thesis or, a, or an undergraduate thesis uh, should on something that they're really deeply thinking about should have the mechanism and be encouraged to put it out in some kind of e-book form. Certainly, certainly. So anyway, this is going to be the topic of the next Biota Live. I just wanted to put it out there to kind of get the, the community's minds thinking about this idea of self-publishing and the directions to take it. Uh, because certainly when Jeffrey contracted me, I think he'd heard maybe brief mention of it in previous podcasts. But it's something which I'm uh, considering doing currently uh, as well. Uh, I have a lot of text that's been generated. Most of it I've actually kept to myself and, and it can be tidied up and, and put out in a self-published book. With a view also, and I need to make this point, that there are currently at least three book projects, Springer book projects going through the community. And Liz has asked me to put out some particular reference the Origin of Design in Nature, which is the book that she's co-editing with Dick Gordon and Joseph Seckbach. And there is another Dick Gordon book called The... Is it The Origin of Life? It's Origins of Life, and it's uh, mainly chemists 
uh, in that one. I'm doing, you know, I think we're both participating in that. Certainly. Certainly. That was, I, I think Dick had a series of Origins books that he's planning on doing in probably the next five to ten years. And I think this was the, the first two of the, the Origins. It's the Origins of Life on Earth and Other Planets, which fits into an email that I received during the week about astrobiology and how astrobiology could work with the artificial life community. This has been a, an ongoing topic of interest for you, Bruce. Uh, in terms of the astrobiology community, do you see that artificial life could almost become a theoretical astrobiology? Well, there's, there's definitely a crossover. Uh, when I did a talk at the SETI Institute in January, there was a, a leading astrobiologist right there in the front row peppering me with questions. And basically she'd done some of the earliest artificial chemistry simulations on substrate simulations in software, probably even prior to the birth of the artificial life field. Uh, so those, those people who've been thinking about life on other planets are, in some sense, they are artificial life people. Uh, by definition, you know they have a different scope and landscape they're looking at, but they're they're artificial life people. Certainly, certainly. And I think Liz one mentioned that she's going to a, an astrobiology conference, and I think the next month, and will be seeking out similarly like-minded artificial life interested folk to participate in Biota and or potentially future book projects or the current book projects that uh, Dick Gordon is. Is publicizing, so I wanted to I wanted to hold this bite, Bruce, to talk about what I'm describing, kind of in a in a soundbite as the state of the union of artificial life. I've received quite a bit of correspondence in recent weeks uh, about the the various turmoils associated with aspects of the artificial life community, and I think I think when we talked about the quality of life, which is something that I wanted to bring into the bias alive discussions, even two and a half years ago, things were looking pretty bleak. They certainly haven't improved. I think what I find kind of surveying the correspondence is that we really are following something which you predicted almost two years ago in terms of the general bunkering down of the community. I think we're all returning to our favorite projects and working on those. Certainly, as I've mentioned, uh, Jeffrey Ventrella and uh, Gerald Jung have been in correspondence about their particular projects. But I do get the sense from others in the community that in these kind of circumstances, what, what folks tend to do is return to what they really enjoy in, in the artificial life. I don't necessarily want to say hobby, but the artificial life kind of, um, their, their own particular interest in artificial life, let's put it that way. And certainly in terms of the grassroots communities, the I've, I've received correspondence over the past couple of months about folks who are interested in, in getting together and starting up independent communities. And I know my hope is actually to be in the, the Bay Area and give a couple of talks in probably a July time frame this year. As you've, as you've traveled through the, through the world, I mean, you, you've spoken uh, at various gatherings talking about things associated with the artificial life community and, and the Evo grid in particular. Do you get a sense of the kind of the way things have progressed basically over the past three or four years economically and your sense about these grassroots artificial life groups maintaining through these particular turbulent economic times? I think that there's a high, high attrition rate. 
So, for example, you know, we've seen several members of our Graysum community lose their jobs. Also, uh, starting families and having one or two children and, and having simply no time. I mean, people know what it's like to have an infant. Your time is just gone. I mean, you're working at 150% commitment. So all of those things which maybe you were doing on the side, it's not your your day job or go. I think there's just really a, if there's periods of sort of good and growing employment and opportunity and people not running scared, I think they're more likely to, you know, commit time to building that Burning Man exhibit or, or doing their artificial life work on the side. And Certainly. I, I think there was a subset of the community and particularly... I, I, I guess through the the late 90s, really going up to the kind of dot-com implosion, where there were a number of folks in the community that seriously thought this was going to be their life's work. I mean, that they had devoted their time and energy to artificial life and this would create careers. And as I started doing even the bio podcasts, even as, as late as three years ago, there were certainly folks in the community that could see themselves generating income from artificial life. I was always slightly sceptical, although I had to remain a, a, to give a relatively positive narrative. But I think certainly what you've seen is that people who had anticipated not necessarily getting rich quick, but certainly making careers that would generate reasonable uh, life-sustaining income through artificial life have had those hopes and dreams dashed certainly in, in recent years if they if they ever could well, exist at all. A good, a good parallel is, is uh, over in virtual worlds and avatars. And I call it the kind of, over in that medium, I call it world struck, where, where people are, come into virtual worlds and they think they, can have, they have endless possibilities and capabilities and they, they approach the medium with a naivete where it's, like, we'll do virtual shopping malls, and I'll set up a whole company to do that. And over the years, you know, over 15 years of seeing rise and fall, and virtual worlds are now in, in another declining phase. Uh, they're closing. It seems like every couple of weeks a platform is closing or company shutting down. And and so the naive people who set up these, these companies and enterprises without knowing history um, went burned through their VC. And this is, of course, almost no VC for artificial life, really. Uh, but, you know, then there's this disillusionment and whatnot, and then four or five or six or ten years later, there's a new wave because there's a new crop of people who come in and the meme or the idea is still out there. And so they're attracted into it, and they read some of the existing work, and then they start up all over again. And you see that the naive ideas reappear again. Uh, and, and, you know, old-timers like us uh, who've been through the various stages of Middle Earth uh, can say all we will about, well, there's been five companies that have failed. I mean, you look at, the, in Artificial Life, the prediction company of the early 1990s. You know, the idea that Artificial Life could be used for all kinds of prediction, including stock prices and commodity futures and things like that. And that came and went, but I'm sure that over the last 20 years, there have been people who are considering using artificial life as a prediction tool. Certainly. And so, so, but they don't study the history of the prediction company and what happened to it, and they haven't talked to the people involved, so they start from scratch again, and they make all the same mistakes. Because artificial life is more, it's not a tech, 
it, it, it's a dream in a sense. It's like artificial intelligence or many other things in, in, in technology, and as Eric Davis would call it, technosis. Um, it, it's more in the, the side of the dreams of possibility rather than a, a set and dried way to implement and build systems that do things. Certainly, and I think there's an intoxication with regards to the power of contemporary computing as well. I, I think what you say is exactly right with regards to the notion of the dream, but certainly the, the potential with regards to contemporary computing and the power that contemporary computing has is also a, an intoxicant in some regard in this kind of philosophy that there will be immediate solutions to, to these kind of problems. Interestingly, I mean, through doing the through doing Biota Live, there have been a few participants who have really talked very strongly about the potentials of these uh, technologies to do the kind of things that you're you're discussing. But I guess my sense with regards to the, the kind of old timers, the, the the white beards of the artificial life community, is that they have lived through at least two, if not three, of these kind of cycles, and yet maintain their um, I don't necessarily want to use Yoda as an example, but maintain their connection with the community in that fashion. And certainly for folks who are who are listening in who, you know, feel really that they've been developing projects for ten, fifteen years and, you know, once again this is this is another dark period, I think what we can do is start to start percolating with the view that this you know, these things come in cycles and the cycle may be going down currently, but what will happen in the future is that, as you say, these folks will come in and it will be things like, well, I hope even off possibil the possibility that these podcasts will persist. I know the Internet Archive is still a, a surviving entity, so you know there'll be audio out there, there'll be text out there, there'll be a wide variety of videos. As you say, the, the richness of media um, in this present wave of artificial life development is far stronger, although maybe not as mainstream, no, no BBC documentaries or these kind of things, but certainly there's a lot more information out there now that could be catalogued in the, in the next rise uh, for the artificial life community. And, and I think what, the rise and fall has a great metaphor, and the metaphor is surfing. And I always sort of think of it in this way. Is if you're a good surfer, and I was a terrible surfer, but uh, you're sitting on your board and you look on the horizon and you can see patterns, and the patterns are the set of waves that is actually a good set and it's worth actually paddling out for and, and getting ready to ride. When you get out in the set of waves, it's usually three or four in a row, so you have three or four opportunities to ride these waves. And, and then you look around yourself and you see other surfers. You see more experienced surfers who are going to take the wave. And surfer culture says, you know, you two people can't take the wave, therefore the more experienced person or the person in the right position takes the wave. Then you might get another shot because you watch the, the surfer who just took the wave and see how well they did. And you might take the last wave, but you might do pretty well, or it might not be your set. And And what I've been doing the last, couple of years of research uh, is trying to figure out, not looking at the, the, the waves that have already come in, you know, because they're just sort of shimmering relics now and their memories, but what is the truly new, uh, one of the truly new waves that's a real disruptor that comes in from the side? And I think I've found it. And that is this, this huge drive um, 
in industry actually funded by a number of very wealthy individuals to create comprehensive molecular dynamics simulations. And artificial life is the beneficiary of a lot of other fields and a lot of investment, just as virtual worlds were the beneficiary of about a trillion dollars of investment in 3D chipsets for games, which is another field, but virtual worlds managed to pick up on that because you could get NVIDIA cards for a hundred bucks that would run huge landscapes. So a lot of fields got birthed by that. And there's a lot of investment going on now in in molecular dynamic simulation. And what what MD, as they call it, is, is it says we can simulate atoms interacting, they're zooming around velocities, they're forming bonds, and they're forming molecules. And the, if you can do this, if you can simulate several microseconds of a volume of chemicals, virtual chemicals, you can solve enormous problems in cancer research and how cells work and how materials assemble. This is going to be an industrial revolution. So in here in 2010, what people are now comparing they're they're locking together 32,000 processors into various parallelized MD simulations, and they're creating 100 nanoseconds of complete uh, simulation time and as though it was real chemicals. And some of the people are saying, well, we can do 127 nanoseconds in a, in a day of computing. And, and it sounds kind of laughable, you know, this isn't much time. But in 120-second nanoseconds, you could watch how a sodium channel works across a cell membrane. And, and so it's, it's incredible stuff, and it's coming obliquely from another place. It's coming from another industry, but it's a very big industry. It's an industry that's a thousand times the size of any artificial life. It's, it's the full bulk of biochemistry is now turning to this, and a few pioneering projects are, are achieving results. And it's very early days, as the English would say, early days. Certainly, certainly. So I, I see you're on the cusp of the EvoGrid wrap, so we're, we're almost getting to that point in the, in the show, Bruce. But before we do, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're describing here because one of the groups that I'm looking forward to meeting with when I'm in the Bay Area is actually the group at Intel who've been using Noblate for the past five years. They're actually doing a, a code drop in the July period after about two-person years' worth of work on, on Noble 8. My suspicion is it's around the same time as Apple's WWDC, but I don't want to jinx anything. Um, so that interaction will be the first time that I have met uh, all these engineers, and also my hope is some of the Apple engineers will come over as well, although a number of the folks who have worked on Noble 8 at Apple have gone on to other companies now, um, some in Seattle, some still in the Bay Area. So it'll, it'll continue to be an open invitation for the Intel talk in particular. But I think the sense of even, even you know, the, the chip manufacturer that is Intel is that they are really thirsty for the kind of applications that we can provide in artificial life. And I think you're exactly right. The, the linking with uh, molecular dynamics uh, into aspects of the artificial life community is, is almost there. And certainly you're a great champion. We'll talk a little bit about A-Life 12 probably in your, in your EvoGrid wrap. But to talk a little bit about uh, what I'm doing currently with Noble 8, because it fits into another uh, aspect of the discussion that we've had through BioToLive pretty well since we started BioToLive, and that's the idea of artificial life in game development. 
I remember the, the last Bios Live we had, I'm not sure if you had a chance to uh, listen to it. We have Eric Burton in the chat. But I talked with some poor audio quality with some uh, folks, I think they're in Pittsburgh, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, who are developing uh, critiding uh, offspring. And the Havoc engine that they use is a game engine which is an open source game engine. And certainly some of the discussion that we've had through BiadLive is this idea that artificial life simulations could hybridize a game SDK very similar to the Havoc SDK for physics. And I was on uh, Wikipedia, I think it was last week now, looking at the kind of open source game engines that are available, particularly for a group of games which I guess are called real-time tactical games. These are uh, fundamentally, you know, the, the Romans versus Gauls, uh, Napoleonic uh, battles, these kind of games, which have solid artificial life elements. And there was no engine there that provided... Uh, this kind of uh, this kind of strategic or tactical battle simulation uh, in an open source engine. Now, in 2005, actually, just as I was leaving the UK, I developed a, a subset of the Noble Eight simulation called Noble Warfare, which actually simulated these kind of battles because the house that I lived in in the UK looked out over a large field, which was the uh, it was an area that had a, a number of really pre-Roman, that kind of period, uh, battles that were fought on it. And I would look out over this field. It's actually in my uh, introduction to Welcome to the Simulation in, in Dick Gordon's book, uh, Divine Action, Natural Selection. And I would think just a little bit up the road, there was this bog man that was buried, I guess, in... Well, uh, you know, I can't recall actually his exact dates, but uh, BC kind of dates. And the sense that these prior to Roman battles had gone on with these, you know, prehistoric humans as they kind of created their own uh, cultures and these kind of things, prehistory fundamentally, uh, really got me interested in this idea that, well, Perhaps the continuation of the noble ape simulation is that the noble apes get to this point. I mean, they exert what I describe as nationalism when they create their own boundaries and don't let other apes pass into their areas. And there are these kind of phenomena that uh, I think uh, Hervé Noel also mentioned with regards to his Evoran simulation. So there's a, there's a history in intelligent agent simulations getting to this point. So I developed Noble Warfare as a proof of concept in 2005, actually, as I was moving over to the US. But it's kind of set dormant uh, to one side. And looking through the uh, Wikipedia list of these simulation engines and the lack of something to cover real-time tactical, I thought, I already have this technology in Noble Warfare. Why don't I just reintegrate this in the Noble Ape simulation and almost repackage it uh, in some way into a kind of game engine, at least for folks that are interested in scripting and uh, the kind of technologies that would lend themselves very well to this being used in, in games. So my current development with Noble Ape is actually with the integration. And also, Noble Ape itself is, is a series of kind of tiered technologies, and really it is just a matter of removing the section relating to the biological simulation and potentially aspects of the noble ape cognitive simulation and reinserting this noble warfare engine component. But I like the idea that, and this is what Gerald de Jung is doing in parallel with Darwin at home, that when you create an artificial life simulation, you have to create a 
series of additional tools around it that you can actually remove sections and put in other sections. This was the central theme in my work with Larry Yeager in terms of bringing a Polyworld sea monkey into Noble Ape and potentially taking a Noble Ape into the Polyworld environment, that we really are creating a whole series of little components. So I wanted to just put that out to the artificial life community, that folks have been developing projects. And I, I think here Dave Kerr as well. I mean, what he had uh, with uh, AI Planet and uh, the engine that he developed out of AI Planet was really moving in this direction too. It would be wonderful to see you know, medium to long-term artificial life simulators start considering parts of their simulations, isolating, perhaps adding to them, and then putting them out to the game development community. I know Mark Badeau has talked quite strongly about going out and almost evangelising the artificial life community to the game development community. I, obviously, GDC this year has been and gone, but my hope is GDC next year and potentially GDCs to come will have a, a good crop of artificial life community folk uh, there talking at the academic roundtables and these kind of things, trying to get folks in game development actively interested and involved in the uh, the artificial life community. But that's that's my noble ape rap. I just wanted to have a, a little time to uh, lead in, Bruce, to obviously the amazing stuff that's going on with the Evo Grid currently. I, I follow Peter's development with the Evo Grid with particular interest in terms of what you're describing, the movement into... Uh, what does, is it called quantum molecular dynamics, these kind of aspects of, of simulation? What's currently happening with the EVO grid? Well, we're now kind of in a sprint. We're in a four- to five-month sprint to get uh, results. To, to We've now really defined what the EVO grid is. We have to get results by, say, July to be able to report them, both in a seminar I'm going to in London and then at Artificial Life 12, uh, given we, we've been given a tutorial slot uh, for probably an hour, and I'm writing a paper now on this, the Evo Grid as an architecture. And we've actually finally, after really two years of, of going back and forth writing code, um, and, and now my recent reading of a lot of these papers on artificial chemistries, so we really defined what the Evo Grid is in the context of the huge, well, the emerging field of artificial chemistry simulation. And and so the goal is by the summer to have generated uh, our proofs of concept, our control experiment and our, and our search tree algorithm secret sauce experiment and generated enough of those simulation runs to show that our technique is actually something that people would use if they made an an origin of artificial life system or a chemical molecular dynamic artificial chemistry that they would use our optimization technique. And it really comes, it's really narrowed down to that, uh, that we're showing an optimization technique to be used in any, in any framework. And I guess this idea of the Evo grid as kind of conceptual algorithm is something that's come through the discussion, particularly with regards to ratcheting, and really almost the Evo grid is something that could be described almost like a, a kind of metaphysics, if, if this makes some sense to you. The idea that the Evo grid exists with the potential that everything uh, around it, the underlying simulation fundamentally can be replaced. But what you're describing here is 
really a, a, a metaphysics, truly. It, it really is. It's saying that if you're doing frame-by-frame frame molecular dynamic simulations, uh, you can do you know, millions of frames in a sequence. And if you're doing a traditional MD simulation, you're setting up a small volume of, of simulated chemicals, and you're just watching the bonds form and watching the behaviors. What the Evil Grid says is set up a lot of experiments, and if if a particular branch is generating something interesting that you, by analysis, think is interesting, allow more branches to occur. And another variant on this is if something that was interesting, say the emergence of a catalyst, or the, the performance of the very performing of a catalytic reaction happens, uh, and then it ceases to happen in subsequent frames because the catalyst is simply gone, reverse the clock and backtrack and allow the catalytic frame to pro to propagate again. And so you're, what you're doing is, and this is what uh, Peter researched, and he said we're doing stochastic hill climbing, but we're also doing a ratcheting too, in that we're saying we care about frames of a thousand atoms or whatever we are that, that show catalysis. So we're going to select those. And it's a lot like the genetic cross dissolves of of Carl Sims, where people aesthetically chose really cool patterns to blend with other patterns, and so it, it pushed the vector along. So it, 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 but the Evo Grid is aimed straight at at the simulation of molecular chemistry uh, rather than artistic pursuits or other things. And why we're doing that is because I think that in probably Ten years, the entire artificial life field, at least on the software side, will be using will be in artificial chemistry, because the artificial chemistry systems will be mature, will be maturing, and people will say, "Hey, these artificial chemistry systems not only are related to reality, which is financially and as business and scientific value, but they're simply that much more interesting." It's almost like going, my, my analogy for this, it's like going from Pac-Man, the virtual worlds of Pac-Man in the, in the 70s and 80s, I guess it's mostly the 80s, and the virtual worlds of World of Warcraft. You know, why would you go back to Pac-Man when you've got physics and havoc and, and objects moving around and ray casting and explosions and whatnot? MD and simulated chemistries are so rich, they're so incredible what is going on in them, that everything previous looks like Pac-Man. Mm. I, I do agree in, in some regards with regards to that criticism of, of kind of contemporary artificial life. And certainly when we had, um, is, is this Stephen Gurren? Is that how you pronounce his surname? I'm never sure. I'm not sure either. But anyway, when we had Stephen Gurren on, when he was discussing the gondola problems and the various traffic problems, that his group at Redfish uh, simulate and find solutions to. That did struck me as kind of late 90s style artificial life simulation. I do see this notion of um, kind of historical legacy and also seeing where these things fit in. But do you get the sense that, I mean, you've, you've mentioned Polyworld, you've uh, talked a, a bit about crediting. Do you get the sense that these kind of simulations where they have an underlying not necessarily chemical cognitive process, certainly that came through in a lot of Steve Grand stuff with creatures, but where really the 
the cognitive part, the uh, intelligence, the artificial intelligence part is a black box. Do you see that that kind of simulation will be put into a kind of chemical molecular dynamic simulation in the next decade? Well, one of the things is if, if you have a rich physics, uh, and the, 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 believe me, it's, it's, it's very difficult to manage these systems. Gromax alone, which is what, what Peter is using, is, has hundreds of parameters, hundreds, to set up experiments. The interactions between virtual atoms if you go down to the quantum dynamic level, you'll never compute them. I mean, it's just it's so rich. So, molecular dynamics there's there's hundreds of modalities of interaction between you know at a distance interaction that's close. So the thing is so incredibly rich that it's it's like going into a 3D game with incredibly rich physics. Suddenly realize the possibilities are just now so much larger for for behaviors. You know, when you go into a physics enabled virtual world with a lot of objects in it, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, you're now in discovery phase. You're not, you're not trying to push little things around. You're trying to, to grok what is going on because so much behavior is going on. Certainly. I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, the example that I can use in Noble Ape is, is very stark in this fashion. When I started developing Noble Ape, I couldn't multiply together anything bigger than bytes. So the environment that I created in that historical perspective of Noble Ape was very heavily constrained by the processing power that I had access to. But you you were right, the the kind of simulation of the day, as it proceeded through, although um, some, including yourself, have been relatively critical how the graphics have not necessarily proceeded through modern computing, but certainly the underlying processing of what's going on has has very much moved uh, into multi-threading in-core processes, and the richness of the environment has changed underneath it uh, as well in the case of Noble Ape. So I do see even contemporary simulations moving in that direction. I guess my interest is... What you're really describing here is not that the sea monkeys will start simulating uh, particle interactions under their, I don't know what they are really, whether they're monkeys or fish-like things or whatever the sea monkeys are, but it's not that it will get to an extreme level of detail where this kind of simulation will be done to small portions of them. What you're describing is actually the richness of the simulation will create vast environments for the sea monkeys to inhabit. Yeah, and... Well, one of that's returning to Dick Gordon. One of the things about molecular dynamics is 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 it's it's an emergent engine. It's an emergence engine. So, because of the vast possibilities in the physics and the recombination of things, and what Dick Gordon always talks about is the emergence of perception. If you had an artificial life entity in one of these MD simulations, you would know it. Well, not not only because you'd see fairly similar copies of, of a large structure moving around, but because the structure has perception. And perception doesn't mean that it can read English. It means that things are, are going across a boundary. It's causing change within this structure. It doesn't have to necessarily be a cell. It could be any kind of a structure. And it's causing behavior. So perception has emerged from nothing. And, and so Certainly. these are, as you as you pointed out earlier, these are the metaphysical concepts. So perception and and design, the origin of design. You know that that the system was so rich that a a design 
emerge to take advantage of the system and to use resources in the system. Uh, and this is, of course, uh, Liz Swan's theme uh, for the uh, or an upcoming you know, Biota 5, I guess. Certainly. I mean, just, just on the point, rewind a little bit, ironically, rewind a little bit. The point that you made with regards to stopping the simulation and rewinding a little bit and finding a point where something interesting happens, I remember numerous conversations with you where you were actually concerned at some point with regards to the hand of God criticism. And you seem to be moving away from that, which I actually think is very positive. I don't think we need to worry about what other naysayers may be saying about how particular simulation, certainly it doesn't apply to any other aspect of intellectual endeavor or otherwise. But have you moved away from this hand of God criticism? Are you now happy to put the hand of God into the simulation? Well, what's interesting is a, a conversation that I had with Steen Rasmussen in Denmark I believe it was in October, and he said, you know, you know, chemists and what chemists do is the hand of God. I mean, they are going in there and they are setting up experiments and they are they are tweaking and, and heating and shaking and trying to get something to happen. Now, what, what it is true, though, is it's sort of a light hand of God that they can't make the molecule do exactly what they want. And and it's a huge guessing game, and they're in the dark a lot of the time. So I, what I tend to say to this argument is, uh, if you can get it so that it's, say, 10% influence for 90% emergence, then you have a system that is bona fide, not put together, tinker toy, piece by piece by engineers, which would be the complete you know, hand of God. But you have... Uh, a well-meaning set of people setting up a system for which amazing emergent phenomena come out that they did not design, that they did not put together. They set up the conditions. And certainly, historically, a lot of cultures believe that God actually created the universe in the initial conditions and then walked out of the room and said, no, well, whatever I'll, whatever happens, <laughs> let it happen. And that's, that's, the tissue boiled over and you know, the rest is history. Yeah, that's God-light. And a lot of cultures... Uh, their gods are that, and their gods are not there. In Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, sort of the people who believe that God is running every single little aspect of life, that's actually a, a vast minority in, in God traditions that, that actually believe that. That's more of a fundamentalism. Uh, but it's actually somewhat unique to uh, to American fundamentalism, that the people actually believe this. Yes, it's a it's a fascinating uh, psychological trait. I don't necessarily know whether it's American fundamentals. We always we always end up on these kind of discussions, but certainly, yes, uh, somewhat somewhat uh, characterized by uh, American fundamentalism. And I think I also made this point in um, divine action, natural selection, with regards to the fact that we shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't be concerned about these kind of criticisms because, as you say, chemists, I also noted physicists, economists, lawyers, accountants, there are a wide variety of professions that don't take any kind of external criticism and modify their behavior based on it. And I don't think we need to feel particularly sensitive. Maybe it's the Dawkinsian connection with the artificial life community, but certainly I think... Uh, we, we get a lot out of actually occasionally uh, shaking up the simulation, occasionally zapping a few of the entities within the simulation, and as you say, 
doing fundamentally what a chemist does when, when a chemist does chemistry. Well, so in terms one, of... One concept butting in here is my answer to this question about the Evo grid, should it, should it evolve into a wonderful, massive MD simulation in which stuff can emerge, is that there would be two versions. One would be the black box where nobody can uh, mess around and the thing is pretty much running lights out, automated, even automated detection, automated tree search. And the other one is the intelligent designer edition, which allows anyone to go in and try to set up things and build structures and whatnot. And, and comparing and contrasting those two, the hacker, hacker Evo grid and the, the scientific, you know, black box emergent Evo grid, it'd be kind of like a, a John Henry, uh, you know, us against the machine. Uh, can we, in our little intelligence, be artificial gods and uh, in, in, to, to coin uh, to coin our our, uh, our friend from Biota to uh, Douglas Adams, can can we beat the emergence engine? Can we come up with something that can survive? And what if the emergence engine came up with the artificial entity that people looked at and they say that that's artificially alive? And before humans could fabricate it in the intelligent designer edition, and that would be a tremendous uh, wake up call, actually. That intelligence is a, not necessarily the best tool to do this kind of work. Certainly, certainly. And if I can, if I can take a right turn at a favourite topic of mine, which is this idea of summoning the Evo grid. I was listening to a, a podcast by a fellow called Sid Lieberman, who is a professional storyteller. I think this idea of narrative and the power of narrative is very much part of the summoning the Evo grid discussion. And he was commissioned by NASA to write the story of the spirit Mars lander. So he had a couple of podcasts recently describing his experiences spending time at NASA. He's a, he was a, a high school teacher in Chicago for a number of years, but a professional storyteller in parallel to this. And his description of going into NASA and talking with all the scientists, and then he performs the story of spirit, which really is a story of all the scientists and engineers that kind of contributed to spirit uh, in a you know amazing kind of i guess hour long story which describes all the tense moments and these kind of things in the actual uh, life of the lander just prior to it landing kind of encapsulating everything in its design up until that point the idea of narrative with regards to what we do is really quite critical particularly as as you go and talk to audiences uh, about the evo grid as, as you summon the evo grid in terms of your own thinking of the kind of summoning the Evo grid meta problem, how has the story of the Evo grid changed really in the past six months? Because I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not only not only nominally an advisor on the Evo grid, I'm also a long-term fan of the kind of narrative of the Evo grid. Uh, how do you see it has changed in the past six months? Well, the the major change is a peeling off, and this is. Um largely induced by Peter, a peeling off of the long vision of what the evil grid could be, the, the dream of the evil grid from the reality of what we're able to build and prove in the short term with you know, only a couple of people working on it and very low budget. So I've, I've held fast and dearly to the, the, the mast of the, the, the great ship of the Evo grid as the, the storms blast through. At the same time, Peter's down in the engine room 
figuring out how to turn the propeller once. And so what what I'm writing in terms of, say, the paper for Artificial Life 12 is a very, very, it, it's not going to carry the dream of it because everybody at Artificial Life has read Mark Badeau's, you know, ch challenge number two, which is to create an in silico uh, origin of artificial life, and everybody knows that. So it's a pre preaching to the converted thing. So that paper is going to be the, the Peter engine reality, how much can we get built in six months kind of thing, and what are we adding to the store of knowledge about doing uh, simulations in molecular dynamics. You know, and, and so it's, that has very much tunneled down to we, we have an optimization technique, and it's very, very computer science-y. It's Certainly. algorithm uh, before and after. Certainly. I, I guess certainly I've seen that change in the past six months as well, almost a kind of pragmatism of the vision. And really, kind of historically, and I think this is, this is an important thing if you write a book after the PhD, is a lot of the early conversations, a lot of the early discussions, some of them are private. I mean, some behind-the-scenes stuff, I had a, a wide repository of EvoGrid-related audio on a computer that was stolen... I don't know. I can't even remember. Probably 12 months ago now, Hi. even more than 12 months ago. But my office was burgled and this computer was stolen and it had all my resources of EvoGrid discussion, including uh, high, just a wide variety of folk. Freeman Dyson, uh, your first trip to Flint, which I think was really very much part of this summoning uh, element and very much part of this high vision and hearing feedback from others and these kind of things. It was fascinating to me to have that audio, but unfortunately all that audio is now lost. I do understand the notion that this was private audio and these kind of things, but it would be really wonderful to get, get the, the write-off in terms of getting permission from the folks who actually spoke the audio, particularly the likes of Freeman Dyson. I don't want to say too much, but I mean, when you're dealing with people of, of Freeman Dyson's seniority, really getting the, the signature off in terms of releasing that audio, this, this information may be lost. I know fundamentally, both in the artificial life community and certainly with things like the Digibarn, you're an archivist at heart, Bruce, so you must feel this as well, the need to kind of get this audio in a form at least which is public or accessible in some regard. Do you see, you, once the PhD is done, do you see that being the time where you can kind of collect the wealth of history that's gone into the Evo grid and potentially publish it or release it as audio or do these kind of things? I could. I really see doing that at some point. And one of the things that is, is a truism in, in the archivist uh, history field is that the, the longer things go, you know, when people uh, are deceased uh, and time goes by, generally recordings like this unless they impinge on private family details or intellectual property. No one seems to mind if they're made, made public. Um, so the archivist always knows that eventually uh, things kind of just get released because somebody's interested in them and decades have gone by. Certainly. But I guess from my own personal perspective, the kind of visionary narrative and this touched on a wide variety of, of folk, people at you, at NASA and, and other folk. I can't think the fellow who 
was the musical publicist that you talked with in New York. Howard um, Bloom. Howard Bloom. These kind of interviews, I mean, we are talking about 40 hours plus of, of audio, probably 100 hours plus, in, to be honest. But I think there are so many voices through this early discussion, Eva, where really it was, as you described, this this kind of, I, I don't know whether it's a torch that's thrown in the distance or something like that, something to move towards. Certainly that element the Evo grid, I, I feel, I don't know, I feel lacking when I hear your modern talks because I know that the Evo grid has become something that's very particular and related to a PhD and certainly I follow Peter's work, his, his individual file check-ins, in fact. So I do get the sense of it being something now which is very definite but the whole vision and hope element was something that I think, uh, I'm not alone here, I know others in the community that feel this way as well, that the need for the Evo grid at a particular time as a vision has not left the community at all, whilst this, this thing has actually been ratcheted down into something that's smaller. Do you see, do you see the Evo grid in the future as returning to this vision of the Evo grid, or do you think that, well, the Evo grid is now very much the Evo grid 3.0 is now defined? Or do you see that there will be an intellectual movement in the future that will be similar to the kind of early days of the Evo grid in terms of the many different possibilities? We did talk at one period of time about there being a number of Evo grids. Well, in fact, what I've seen in the last, you know, with other sort of visionary technologies that have come out is that they're usually in the beginning and often it's before anything is running in code. There's this incredible imaginative burst of, of space filling, of possibility space filling. People dream up what things could be. And this certainly, you can see this in many fields. You can even see it in aircraft and in flight and what radio could be. You know, in the first radio sets we're working in the 19-teens and 20s. Um, and, and then there's a, there's a tunneling into what it does become for a period of time, and then it expands out again, and, and it makes another breakthrough. Um, and, and I think that, for instance, in the EvoGrid, uh, the idea was to come up with a word that embodied you know, a large system whose goal it is to create an artificial origin of life, or an origin of life in silico, as Mark Bedeau points out, that this is the, the name of the project, and that I'm hoping that you know, either we get a philanthropist who gives us, you know, half a million a year for 20 years in which we could make incredible progress with the global team and, and aim at that thing, the visionary thing. But we need 20 or 30 years. Or that somebody in the future says, yeah, I want to build an Evo grid, you know, that thing that was supposed to, to do an artificial origin of life and, and, and has these properties and has this test, of test the Turing test for the evil grid uh, life forms and things like this, and that that idea is out there and someone else will pick it up. Certainly in, in a lot of talks I'm going to do in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, however long I'm able to talk, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up. And at Yuri's night, in a week and a, just a week and a bit at NASA Ames, the big space party, I'll be on stage doing the big vision thing for the evil grid again you know, to a different audience. But... You know, it really is, it could be a generational thing. It could be that two or three or four generations from now, somebody gets the support and actually does this thing. Certainly, certainly. 
Well, as we conclude the show, um, not necessarily associated with the artificial life community, but really the the history of computing. I, I heard just before I started the show that Ed Roberts had passed away. Did you, did you know Ed personally? I never met Ed. Um, last year, for about six months, I was working with many of the people who founded MITS, and this is the company that created the Altair, the first mass-produced kit. And created Bill Gates in the process. Yeah, Bill Gates. And Bill Gates had been down to see Ed on Friday of last week. Uh, he flew down there. Um, because they were they were close, and he knew that. Uh, well, basically, in November we were launching the MITS at 40 website on the DigiBarn. It's the 40th anniversary of the founding of MITS, and we had a ton of input from everybody, Forrest Mims, and many other people who had worked with MITS and had co-founded MITS. Uh, and we were going to get. Um, they were all asking Ed for uh, a write-up, and I think this was even earlier. Maybe it was October. And Ed's wife wrote back, Sam, sorry to tell you that uh, Ed is in the hospital. And I believe he never came out. I mean, he's only 68, but he had pneumonia and complications, and he passed away uh, yesterday at about noon in, in his native Georgia. So then the, the, what we did, of course, is convert the Myths at 40 site into Ed's uh, digital memorial, and people have been sending loads of stuff in, and I'll, I'll be putting stuff up uh, all weekend. Gosh, gosh. Now, I remember that you you have a couple of Altairs, don't you? Yeah, we've got uh, serial number 47 assembled that was actually in the box. It was donated uh, by a man who had never taken it out of the box, never powered it on um, for all these years, and who himself passed away a couple of weeks after he donated it. And so uh, a CNET reporter, CBS reporter, Daniel Turdeman, came down here and we actually opened it up. Uh, it was kind of a Geraldo Re Rivera moment. <laughs> and we opened it up and it said, I said, can you believe there's a 1975 air in here? You know, what a <laughs> climate researcher should know. Yes. Uh, and then we, what we found was a 2K static RAM board uh, nicely nestled in the side, not even in the, in the bus, and no processor board. And it was completely perfect, factory new, but there was no CPU board. Um, and so it was. It's the oldest absolute mint condition, never, never used Altair. Probably somebody, somebody recently wrote that they have Altair assembled number five, uh, but that one was certainly has has got some miles on it. Yes, and I remember a video on the Digibon website of someone programming an Altair to play music. Is that right? Yeah, that was Eric Klein, and uh, that video and Eric's. Work is going into a special exhibit at San Jose Mineta International Airport. That's it's being it's going to be uh, launched uh, in a few months, and uh, they're going to have an Altera there, and there's a video of Eric switching in the the, the the code that played Daisy on an AM radio because the Altera had so much radio emission uh, that you could actually write code that would cause interference on a on an AM radio and would play music. So it was declared by Lee Felsenstein, the head of the Homebrew Club, as the first thing the Altair actually did. <laughs> yes, it was a late program that played Stairway to Heaven, so that's the one that I remember. But you're right, the, the Daisy was, was the first of the Altair's musical experiments. Which goes along with uh, Daisy uh, sung by Hal in the film, Kubrick's film 2001. 
and Fool on the Hill, I think, yeah, was was another one. I've got the I've got the Altair 8080 uh, byte code for both of them in the collection. Terrific, terrific. Well, Bruce, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you. We haven't really publicized. You're doing a track at Artificial Life 12. Is the, are there still seats open? Can people still get in contact and participate with you in, at Artificial Life 12? Yes, and in fact, if you go to the alife12.org website, you'll see there's two tracks that I'm involved with as a co-organizer. One is Artificial Chemistry, and the other one is Artificial Life with David Deemer. And so instead of creating a dedicated track on simulation, we decided to split it across. Uh, this was Steen's concept, and I think it was excellent. Uh, simulation in artificial chemistry, which is simulation, and simulation as bearing on origin of life research. And uh, the paper deadline is a week from today, April uh, 9th. Papers and abstracts. You can submit a 500-word abstract or a up to eight-page uh, paper. Uh, so please do that. The, the deadline was extended, um, and the conference is going to be phenomenal. And it, you know, as, as all the artificial life conferences are, and and according to people that are organizing it, there's, there's a really great interest in in this type of, of simulation of, of chemistry, artificial chemistry simulation there. And so that that's probably your indicator for at least academic where where the tide is turning um, in in this field. And is there going to be some roundtable discussion as well? Is there a slightly less formal? means for people to participate in this track, or is it really just all through formal papers and lectures? There's, it's formal papers and lectures, but there are also satellite events. Um, and uh, if you look at the program, they're just sort of being put up on the website now, but there's three or four satellite events, some of which are before, some which are after, and they're, they're standalone little micro-conferences. Uh, the Evil Grid session is going to be Believe it or not, I'm going to do the vision thing in our one-hour-long tutorial. Um, this is what Steen thought would be a good idea. That this, the update that I give to Flint when I, when I go there, he said, just do that. That'll be interesting for people, and you can show uh, your movies because it's entertaining. It's a little bit a little bit lighter fare. Certainly, certainly. Well, Bruce, it's a, a pleasure as always to chat with you. I, I know you're you're going to be in and out of the Bay Area, but it'd be wonderful to have a chance to chat with you before A Life Twelve and potentially afterwards. I've I've forgot to mention that uh, Mark Bordeaux has been in contact with me in order to release A Life Twelve and related International Society uh, material in podcast form. He, I, and Liz Swan recorded a pilot a couple of weeks ago, and I think there are going to be roving reporters with. MP3 recorders at A-Life 12 uh, taking impromptu conversations and also my hope is that everything at A-Life 12 of a formal nature will be recorded and available in audio format too to be put out in podcast form. It's uh, an exciting project, it's going to be a lot of work but I think Mark has, has been very excited by the feedback and also just his general uh, interest in participating in BioToLive and I think you'd like to see the BioToLive model uh, moved into uh, into the stuff that the International Society does as well, which is uh, wonderful news, but it's going to be quite time-consuming in the foreseeable future. So, Bruce, Congratulations. That, that's a wonderful endorsement.
I think, well, I think his interest is really the feedback that I've received from a segment of the community, the students primarily, the undergraduate and master's students that listen to or have listened to uh, particular bio-to-lives in tutorials, have given this kind of feedback directly, and he sees this really as being the, the way of the future, particularly as there are now in the 30s worth of actual undergraduate artificial life courses that are being taught the world over. Part of the uh, work group uh, that I formed together with Mark and Liz one last year tracked, I think, around 30 artificial life courses uh, internationally, and there are more that are being started. So there are a number of students out there that are hungry for this kind of discussion and certainly like the, the kind of topics that come up in a bio-to-life format. Certainly when I talk to Mark, my interest is not necessarily getting every um, published author in the Artificial Life Journal, but at least uh, one per journal uh, on a podcast to have a kind of question and answer session. And also, a lot of are you do you get the Artificial Life Journal, Bruce? I I don't. I get the I get the news in the in the mailing list, but uh, uh-huh. you don't get the print. Because the journal itself, I've been subscribed, I think, for the past six years. There are fractal patterns that appear in the journal in terms of ever-tightening interreferential research, and then occasionally you have a, a paper that just kind of blows that pattern. But I also get the sense that a lot of these papers are part of a history and also a future. They're, they are one paper in a, a set of possibly five or ten papers, and it's very difficult to capture that, particularly if you think of an undergraduate student or a master's student approaching the Artificial Life Journal, they're not going to be able to see that historical legacy or really get a sense of the future. So I think Mark, having appeared on Bias Live probably three or four times now, sees that there are probably a number of academics that publish in the journal that would also love to have the opportunity to talk in perhaps a slightly more structured and formal format than Bias Live specifically, but certainly to give the opportunity to these academics to participate with the potential of having students call in and, and other folks participating. Um, so it's an interesting model. I mean, certainly I've championed it with, uh, with the Biota podcasts over the past, I think this is my fifth year of, of doing these podcasts, so a number of years now. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite exciting to see what direction it goes, potentially also uh, the work groups that have been, have been talked about and people have come on from the work groups into Biota Live similar potential discussion. I think formally it's going to be very officially a sister podcast of, of the Biota podcast. Uh, so there'll be a lot of toing and froing in my senses that people who listen to this podcast series will get a lot out of the, uh, the I don't know what it'll be called, I guess alife.org podcast series when it's released. Uh, but the pilot has been recorded. My hope is to launch it in the next couple of weeks. And one bit of news that I haven't mentioned, the Artificial Life Portal site who would have thought actually creating a dynamic uh, social network of artificial life developers and their respective projects would be a hard process? So I've invested about 18 hours over the past three weekends trying to get this site up and running and gone through a couple of packages already. I think it will formally look quite like uh, Steve Grant's old robotics website. I'm interested in using the Ning software, having gone through a couple of other software packages. But that, too, will be launched in a similar time frame. Unfortunately, my time is relatively finite currently uh, with a lot of additional things that I've picked up, including teaching a course on Objective-C to 30-plus engineers on a weekly basis. So lots of additional stuff coming through. But the 
portal site on this new podcast, Two Exciting Things, and obviously we're having Liz Swan on next week to talk about publishing in particular. Bruce, a pleasure as always. Please don't be a stranger. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Tom.